Welcome to the 67th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the not invented here syndrome. This is tangentially related to other topics we've covered in the past and kind of a follow-up on the last couple of episodes in terms of build versus buy and those, those kinds of things. Not invented here is a thing that often happens when an organization has spent a lot of time investing in people rather than products. Um, the idea being if we have really smart people, we can spend the money there rather than spending the money on buying a software solution or whatever that does this thing for us. And we'll rely on our people to build the tools and understand the systems and kind of maintain all the things. But if that goes unchecked very quickly, you get into a situation where people won't even look at other solutions, things that they haven't written because it isn't bespoke and custom to their environment. So I've got to interject. And, and if you want good culture in your company, you totally want to invest in people. Oh, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest hiring otherwise. good folks and making sure they're well compensated. And I find it interesting how, especially as our work in operations becomes more and more a role as a software engineer or software developer, that it gets super easy to invest in people, put the quote unquote right people in the same room together and they'll come out with the right answers for what we need to do to be successful and how that can really quickly slippery slope into having a very bespoke environment and therefore nothing really fits from the open source or commercial world. And then it becomes not invented here syndrome. Yeah, for me, the real sin of this is when people, like I, I totally understand not looking at commercial products for certain things because commercial products are often fairly expensive and the vendor has financial incentives to not let you do things yourself and not free yourself from paying for it because that's how they make their money. And I, I get that. But the sin here is when, for not invented here, is when somebody stops even looking at open source tools. They stop looking at the community supported things or the best practices that other people have solved. And the the real sin, the, the real terrible one of all of this, this Jack can attest to, is everybody writing their own TSDB. <laughs> this happens. <laughs> everybody feels like they are a unique and special snowflake. Everybody's like, oh, well, we're, we're the size and scale of you know Netflix. It's like, no, no, actually you're not. Um, if you are thinking of the size of Netflix, trust me, you're not. And sorry, a, a better real world example is individual folks saying, Hey, I need to do a blog or whatever it is. I'm not going to use WordPress because WordPress is terrible. I'm going to write my own CMS. Do you have any idea how many crummy CMSs are out there that people have written and kind of abandoned because they didn't fit all the right needs? And they're terrible. Don't ever write a CMS. Like even if you think you're able to, you probably you probably have the skills to do it. But it's a bad idea. We do our website in Hugo. It's a lovely CMS. There's no code to hack into. And it's open source, so we're not maintaining it. And as people find bugs and things and whatever, we're not on the hook to implement anything. We just run Hugo against our against the repo and then it and sometimes we upgrade our version of hugo 
Eh, not terribly frequently. <laughs> but then again, it doesn't matter as much because it's a static site generator and there's nothing to hack into. And there's there's no burden on us to maintain a tool, a bespoke custom tool that we have to to go and and pour hours Squash of our, our own bugs. Yeah, and I've worked at a number of organizations, especially universities, that had very, very, very limited budgets. And when you're very budget constrained, the idea of spending money on an external vendor is always the last thing you want to do. Um, at one point, we were using Sun Microsystems stuff for web servers and whatnot. And then when Oracle bought them, Oracle called up and said, "We basically we're quadrupling the price of all the licensing fees by the end of the end of the year. The, you have like six months basically to either move off of this platform or pay us a whole lot more money." And it was for the financial system. So like, this is not something you just play with lightly. And it's like, yeah, they ha- they ha- they have you, and they're going to take their money, and there's almost nothing you can do about it, and that terrifies a lot of people. But that's one, that's one extreme. And the other extreme is the, well, I'm just write it all myself. I'm smarter than everybody else is. I'm going to write my own thing. I'm going to do all of this myself. And you have this creaky monstrosity that is functional, but without the key players, it doesn't work anymore. Without the key players, it's not upgradable. No existing products that a new person might think about or be familiar with fit into the into the cogs. Yeah. And the number of times that I've walked into an environment and found, you know, bespoke custom stuff that, that fit the needs perfectly of the organization six months ago, but no longer do. And people are trying to scramble to figure out, well, how do we, how do we shoehorn this into whatever? Um, We've built this already. Now we need this other feature, but nothing really fits. How do we cobble CI/CD systems on top of our our bespoke configuration management solution? Oh crap! Yeah, and th- this is one of those places. Like again, my what I my favorite approach to this whole problem. The way, the way I, I try not to get embroiled too deeply in it is you find open source solutions that handle the bulk of what you're trying to do. Um, I worked at a small university for a couple, for eight or nine months doing networking backend work for it's a long story. And one of the, the challenges they were facing was they had 130 ish Cisco devices and they were running 65 different versions of Cisco's iOS and documentation was non-existent. So we dug into, okay, well let's get, let's get knit disco running, which was a fairly well-respected and well-supported piece of software written mostly in Perl that walked the, Cisco um, Cisco Discovery Protocol neighbor tree to figure out what the what the network map looked like and save it all to a database. So you take that, which is doing your automatic network scanning for you. You're not writing this yourself. And then I took basically I wrote a Perl script that bridged that into the Nagios config file system. So suddenly we had the ability to say, okay, anytime any of the switches change within ten or fifteen minutes, we now have a a relatively reactive version of Nagios that will pick up the new things. And we don't have to go and hand maintain all these config files as we go explore the network and find things. So over the process of the next couple of weeks, as we were logging into various things and connecting all the things and getting all of the community strings set correctly and the same and secured, the NetDisco map of the network grew and the Nagios map of the network grew. 
And that way, as we were going, it was building it together. But we never had that whole thing of, okay, well, I need to write an SSH agent or I need to write a telnet agent or I need to write a web server. No, I was I was using commodity or I was using off the shelf open source projects that were well supported and bug fixed and triaged by lots of other people. And all I was doing was gluing one system to another. And I trust myself to write a 300 line Perl script that handles error checking in database connections and whatnot. I don't trust myself to write something that's going to walk the tree for me. And potentially be secure against the internet. Well, and the student networks and all the other things that we had to deal with. So, Oh, students. Yeah. But that, that, that to me was one of my early examples of, no, don't write it yourself. Um, before that, I had fallen into the trap of, oh, I can do my own thing. I, I can build this. No. No, no, no. Somebody else has had this problem before. Um, this, is, this is where my adage of, if you Google for it and you get no, no search results, one of two You're things has happened. Wrong. Well, one of two things has happened. Either legitimately you are the first person on the internet to ever have this problem, or you're doing it wrong. You're not the first person. You're almost never the first person. Even when you think you're the first, the first person, you're still you're not the first person. Yeah. So one of the things I think is misconstrued is this whole concept of build versus buy. It has cool alliteration. Managers talk about it a lot. We talk about it a lot. But the build versus buy equation doesn't really it's difficult to factor in open source i think some folks assume open source using an open source component is building your own solution and it's clearly not buying your own solution and how do you manage and equate the the operations the the tlc that that open source solution requires versus a uh, supposedly supported solution you bought from the vendor. And I've always found that a really easy spot for folks to, to kind of go off the rails when they talk about, please don't build something that we can buy. Talking about not invented here, the build versus buy thing. We're talking about literally cracking a text editor and starting to write code from zero, from you know an empty text buffer up to a working solution rather than going out and finding somebody else's experiment that turned out to be successful. I like it when they're when the open source project's already proven to be successful. Oh yeah. Um, like I would never write a web server ever. That that just that's insanity. Oh come on, those are fun. I think I wrote one a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I'm not talking about having like a Golang daemon that that responds to or listens and responds to a method call. I'm talking about writing something in the level of Nginx or Apache or one of them that that is designed for public-facing, high abuse, security, safety, speed, all of that. I would never do that. God. But there are people, there are people in the world who are like, hey, I would really like, love that challenge. And that's where the Nginx um, engine came out of. They were trying to solve the, the 10,000 concurrent connection problem. And they did solve it. And they went on to make an amazing web server. True. But we went from having effectively one web server, Apache, to having two web servers, Apache and Nginx. And that's fine. We don't need a dozen of them. The other fallacy that I hear people falling into with not invented here 
frequently comes out of the, well, it wasn't written for our needs. Oh, gosh, yeah. Folks never, folks look at something and realize that it doesn't quite exactly fit the bespoke needs uh, that you're looking to fill. And that, that seemingly immediately disqualifies something. Yeah, it, that that's equally as crazy because you're never going to find a solution from a vendor or from an open source project that exactly meets your needs. But most of the time, you can find ways to make it work and ways to make it work without having to go write, you know, go, go spend six months heads down writing code. I mean, I know people who have talked about writing storage backends for TSDBs in their free time. Well, I think I'm one of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I I definitely played with my own TSDB at once because I've gotten way too deep in time series databases. I know how one should work and behave, and all of them work and behave differently. Um, and one of the things that I deal with in with time series databases is the fact that you want to encourage consistency you want to make it easy for people to be consistent in how they report data and how that data gets ingested into that system you want to avoid somebody doing math inside their application and exporting those results and someone else using prometheus to do math to build the same percentiles or or SLO values or what have you. Um, when when you start doing that math in different places differently, note it's different. And you have different assumptions and different understanding of how you can aggregate or not aggregate certain values in your telemetry system. And then you have a giant pile of mess and you never get real good data out of it. Your data is not mathematically provable anymore. And sometimes squiggly lines make folks happy. But if you're running telemetry for a, a company that's that's basing their revenue stream off of that application that's generating telemetry, you probably want it to be um, reasonably close to, you know, correct. And that aside, in the end of the day, Jack, that was a total actually, rant. I'm sorry. No, but did you actually write the storage backend for the TSDB? I attempted to write my own TSDB that was based off of uh, some internet talks from a good friend of mine, Theo, and had some fun with it. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm, what I'm asking is, so you started... You went down the path of like, how hard is this? And you kind of poked around with it and you were, you were digging into the concepts and the basics of it. Yeah. But did you ever seriously put it into production at work? Oh God, no. No, because that's not a good value add. Like I realized if I had a subtle bug, who was going to find it? Who could fix it? The only There's only one you. person. And... Once I discovered that I had a subtle bug, which I knew would happen, what does that mean for my data integrity for everything else that's currently in my system? Okay, I now know that all of the data I had been collecting for one of my big fancy clients 
is just now completely corrupt. But but also <laughs> the and this is where I'm going to use one of the the phrases that AWS uses that I hate so very much. <laughs> the undifferentiated heavy lifting. Is it a core competency of say Apple computer as a or I guess just Apple now, but is it a core competency of theirs to write a web server? No. I'd hope not. Like their core competencies include, you know, hardware manufacturing and material science and operating system stuff. And like they have some core competencies that are that are outside of anything else. And you don't outsource your core competency. You you don't pay somebody else to handle the like Apple would never outsource their um what is it called? The the material science folks who are, who are doing selection of aluminum and, and glass and whatnot, because that is very critical to what they do. That is the product. But having talked to people, Apple frequently outsources things like the product launch design pages. So like the Mac Pro, the Trashcan Mac Pro, when it came out, there was a team that handled, there was an external contractor that Apple brought in to develop design and write that page. Because, I mean, Apple's good at design, but there are other, t- other people in the world who are better at web design than they are, and they know that. And they're like, okay, well, we'll let somebody else handle this piece of it because we're off working on building the hardware or writing the operating system or whatever it was they were doing. Um, in the 90s, Apple was really bad about the not invented here stuff. And there were – I couldn't find any examples when I was looking before the show, but the rumors abounded from from Infinite Loop about how – they would out of hand reject anything that they didn't write because, well, we'll do it better. And it's like, yes, you might do it better, but the other one's already done. So you should just use it. One that comes up to me really in in everyday life is if you're an engineer in a software firm application, you know, some business like that, is it your core competency to to develop and maintain and build your own uh, time series monitoring solution? And the answer to that question should really be no. That shouldn't be your core competency. You've got another revenue stream somewhere else that you want to focus on as your core competency because, well, that's where your revenue comes from. Yeah, but and as application developers, it is your core competency to understand how to make your code observable, your applications observable uh, to some level of expectation and export specific metrics, account of total hits, account of failures, a latency histogram. Um, and that should be your core competency because that means that you can appropriately monitor and debug and build SLOs on top of your application. But that doesn't mean you you have a team of guys actually you know, writing binary formats for files in your TSDB. You no, know, you probably have that team of guys helping set up your backend TSDB solution and working with your developers on site to make sure they understand how they should instrument and make their code observable and build those standards. And of course, there's always exceptions to this. If you are at a very large organization, LinkedIn or Facebook or Google or one of those places, you're going to hit scaling challenges that nobody else has actually gotten to before. And in that case, yeah, totally. That That's when you, you pull out the, okay, the all of the current solutions don't work. 
and we can't refactor the problem correctly because of the size of the data or the speed of the data or whatever it is that we're dealing with. So we're going to write our own thing now. But you only do that after you've exhausted all of the possibilities because redoing other people's work, especially old and tested code, it's like nobody's actually rewriting TCP at this point. People are working on better congestion algorithms. People are working on, on better pieces of the stack. But nobody's writing their own TCP stack, like from the ground up. Well, That's maybe, a lot of code. Maybe Google has, but... Google's done a lot of work in improving existing TCP stacks, but... Yeah. But yes, it's like writing OS kernels isn't cool anymore, and it shouldn't be. Thank you, Linus. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that... To me, that line of should your core competency be writing a TSDB versus should your core competency be producing observable code is a super fuzzy line. And it's easy to to drift. And I think that that fuzziness and that how it's easy to drift is also really obvious in certain other aspects of of doing operations work, uh, especially as as we look for more modern configuration management programs and solutions, and as we shift from, so many people are shifting from a data center based approach to moving into the cloud, and it's the cloud is different. I completely acknowledge. And it's really easy to fall into a couple traps I think are kind of related um, around second system syndrome and getting yourself into a not invented here syndrome. But actually, the cloud stuff is a perfect example of this. So folks were looking at the ephemeral nature of instances in the cloud, and they were looking at the way cloud metrics and monitoring needed to change and be different. And there wasn't, an ex there wasn't a good solution for it. And people had tried to hack Nagios into doing it and other systems and other things. And let me tell you, Graphite's not the solution. <laughs> yeah, but, but none of them really fundamentally handled the thing about the cloud that's different, that you have instances that come up for fives of minutes, and they're important, and you need to monitor them, but you can't afford the time to go restart a daemon or to go pull something every couple of minutes. It has to be more dynamic than that. So the folks who started working on the Prometheus stuff we're thinking, okay, well, how do we fundamentally change the way we handle the metrics gathering so we can do alerts on this? And they had to because the, the cloud in this way is different enough. And yes, this actually was worth it to the point that they have a company around it. Like It became a, a going business venture. A lot of Prometheus came out of SoundCloud, which was, is not a large company. I mean, they're not small, uh, but they're not Google. There was a lot of Google... Um, expertise that helped with its design, but a lot of Prometheus originally came out of SoundCloud. Yeah, but but they were when they surveyed the field of what what solutions do we have? There weren't any good ones that handled the needs and the the changing. There was aspect. some known prior art, but none of that prior art was was open source or accessible. Yeah, so they started working on it and building it, and and they've been working on it for years now, and at this point they're pretty much the de facto solution for cloud-based metrics. Everybody's using them. The, the format's really easy to use and understand and deal with. The The, the long-term storage story is almost, it's almost usable. It's starting to come into focus. Um, Stay tuned for our next episode. 
and again, that's an example of where, yes, we, we they decided to build rather than buy, or they decided to okay, there's nothing else that this, that meets our crazy bespoke need, but they also recognize that this is a need that a lot of other people have. So they said, eh, well, we'll open source it. We'll let other people work on it as well and poke at it and and give feedback on how do we build this and how do we instrument this and how do we do all of the things we need to do to get this working. And it is not a trivial thing to say, okay, I'm going to start my own my own project or my own my own implementation of this idea. But once you've done that, well, there's certainly some benefits there. Yeah, time series management and monitoring is a hard problem. There are Prometheus has made very careful and specific uh, decisions in its design process to be able to exclude some of the really hard problems as far as as time series data goes. And that's helped narrow their focus um, to doing, bless you, Unix, doing one thing and doing it well uh, versus doing many things poorly, um, which I think has really helped Prometheus excel even if it does make it a little bit different from from larger clustery graphite like solutions that we might be familiar with yeah my my largest issue with prometheus is still the ha model i know that the thanos stuff helps get around that but i live and work live and breathe elasticsearch these days and its ha model is is amazing. very different yeah it it has its own trade-offs and quirks and problems but I love the idea that I come into work in the morning and we've lost a couple of nodes overnight and either the cluster has rebalanced or either the node has restarted itself and it's back in or it's just, it's still dead, but we don't even notice. Okay. There's a couple of dead nodes. We'll go kick them. There's no, we don't even think about it. Whereas in most data storage areas, you lose a couple of nodes and you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're dealing with it. So when Prometheus's HA story was you just run two of them in parallel, I was like, what? That's that's a yeah, bold basically statement. their HA um, design was we don't have any. The complexities that an HA design brings into a project like Prometheus is complex, and there are plenty of, of TSDBs out there that have a full-fledged uh, HADR clustery solution. And yeah, that gets incredibly complex. And is that your core competency? Is that something you want to consume into your project? And for Prometheus's point of view, their core competency is being able to gather and report data on your applications right now. And correctly. Correctly. Data from an hour ago or a couple of days ago or last week is a nice to have. But being able to know right now what's going on through your fleet is is where the core competency is. And in a disaster situation, it's what you as an operations professional want to know. This is very similar to the design that Kafka has in that they opt they by all, with all the defaults, they optimize for crash recovery rather than data consistency or data, data correctness, because they assume that you're using this as, a, as a, message, a message pipeline or a streaming a streaming source of data, and the biggest sin is unavailability, not older data. So, okay, well we don't have the older data, but we're online again and we're working, and now the login messages or the auth messages are being passed between the applications, and you can, you can get back to work. 
knowing what you're trying to do and doing that well is really important. But we're starting to wander a little bit. Just a tad. But as you can tell, we are we are big fans of understanding the problem space. And if you legitimately have a new problem or a problem that doesn't get solved in any way that's reasonable, you can look at this. But generally speaking, not invented here is a bad thing. If you have that mindset, if you're approaching every problem with how can we do our own custom version, how can we do whatever, like I don't even like maintaining um, special branches for for projects. I, I don't like having uncommitted upstream patches because it means every time I want to do anything, I have to then go relearn all of the code and refigure out my patch, get everything worked out again. If upstream, I've got a stack of patches for Thanos, and I've done some cool things and gotten gotten some features working that I that I needed, but yeah, I've got to get those patches reintegrated. I can't be maintaining this delicate string of patches I've built. Yeah, because if upstream won't take it, it effectively may, may as well not exist because now you're running your own custom bespoke thing forever. And do you want that burden? No, yeah. no, you, you really don't want that burden. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It is the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to recover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 67th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brenda Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night. Thanos.